0: Excuse me, I'm going to skip around a tiny bit. You might be wondering why we're starting in Revelation. We're talking about Christmas. So this is a description of heaven based on the Apostle John's um, experience, um, vision if you want to call it. I mean he was brought up to heaven so he saw this and this is the kind of stuff that he saw when he was there. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and then he names every kind of jewel he can think of. Um, And then you can skip to verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. So you got a single giant pearl that serves as a gate. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple, in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So that sounds pretty cool, right? That, that's just a tiny description of heaven. There's a lot of descriptions of heaven in the Bible. They don't even need light, because the light of God, the glory of God Himself, just fills the place with light. It's, it's incredible. It's obviously a nice piece of poetry as well. Um, that's what Jesus gave up. Jesus gave up heaven to become one of us, right? Right? And so he gave that up. How many of you have ever um, taken maybe a mission trip or something to the two-thirds world, a developing nation, where you had to maybe sleep a bit rough for a few days? Anybody ever done that? Had to sleep a bit rough. Yeah, some of us. Okay. That's a sacrifice, right? To give up your nice home, your nice bed. Everybody loves their bed. Right? Their own bed. There's just something special about your own bed, your own pillow. Giving all that stuff up. (coughs) I'm not joking. Like, it's, it's a sacrifice. I've slept on hard, like, cement floors before on my arm instead of a pillow. I'm not, like, trying to tell you I'm cool. I'm saying that's a sacrifice, though. Let's be real about it. It is a sacrifice. And Jesus gave up heaven. That's way better than even our bed. Although my bed feels like heaven sometimes to me at night. But uh, <laughs> Jesus gave up actual heaven to become one of us. He had to lay that down. Um, Philippians. Flip to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, f- starting with verse 5. Um, this is risky because... Uh, I'm not going to talk about this for more than a couple of minutes, and it's one of the most dense theological passages in the New Testament. Um, but We're going to give it a go, okay? Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. So in order for the incarnation to take place in the first place, just for it to be possible, certain things had to happen. Okay? God the Son had to give up some stuff in order to become a human being, for the incarnation to take place. And that's, that's what it talks about when it says he emptied himself. Now, now, what did he empty himself of? What exactly are we talking about here? Well, before we talk about it, understand Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, was fully man, fully God at the same time. Right? We know that. And so Jesus was 100% God. Just as much as he was God when he was in heaven, before he gave that up to come, he's just as much God, on earth, when he is also a human. How can you be 100% human and 100% God at the same time? I don't know. That's the miracle of the incarnation. But in order for it to be possible, Jesus had to give up some aspect, qualities, powers, if you will, in a comic book world, that maybe makes more sense to some people, give up some of his powers, superpowers, God powers, in order to make the incarnation possible, for example. But that doesn't make him in any way less God, right? If I lost my ability to see, I wouldn't be any less Nate, right? I'd still be Nate. I just can't see right now, right? And so Jesus had to give some stuff up, not his nature, not who he was, not his essence, but some of his glory, some of the aspects of his glory. Specifically, we learn in the Old Testament, Exodus 33 and other places, that a human being can't look at God. We die, literally. Literally. To see God in the fullness of his glory is too much for our frail human bodies to handle. We would die. Moses begs God, let me see your face. Let me see your face, please, in the fullness of your glory. And God says, I'm sorry, that's not possible, that it's just impossible. It would kill you. I love you, and I don't want you to be dead. So I'm not going to answer this prayer. Okay. And so imagine Jesus showing up in the fullness of his glory. What's going to happen? He will kill everyone near him. Not Intentionally. Just the fact of God's glory is so powerful, it is incompatible with humanity, okay? And so he had to dial that back a half an infinity number of notches in order for the incarnation to be possible, okay? So that's what this is talking about when he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. He didn't have the form of a servant before. He had the form of God. He was the one being served, and he's giving that up in order to become a servant, which is mind-boggling, and he emptied himself. He put out some of that glory, set it down intentionally so that he could become a human being, so that the incarnation could be possible. One of the things he gave up was at least some of his glory, right, so that he could be around other humans. That's just a need. And we know he did that because at the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke chapter 9 at the end of the chapter, God allows some of that glory to be revealed a little bit more. Right? And what happens? He starts shining like the sun, it says. What happens when you stare at the sun? It hurts your eyes, right? Okay? So, and that was just a little, he just picked back up just a tiny bit, I think, of his glory. And he just started shining. His clothes turned white. He started shining like the sun because he picked up just a little bit of that glory. And then he set it back down. Because again, his mission was to be humble, his mission was to serve not to come to earth as God Almighty. Everybody bow and worship me because you're afraid. He came here to serve. Um, So that's one of the things he laid down. Um, Another one of the aspects that he laid down, to some degree or another, was his omnipotence. Omnipotent means omnipotent, all potent, all powerful. God has all power, right? He can do anything. And if you have all power, omnipotence, you have no lack, no need. You can never need anything. God doesn't ever need anything. He doesn't lack anything right? Jesus had to give at least some of that up in order to become a human being because a human being needs to lack. When Jesus was tired, I mean, when Jesus didn't get enough rest, he was tired. When he didn't get enough food, he was hungry. He had lack. That was real. He wasn't faking being hungry after he fasted for 40 days. He was super hungry then, okay? And so he had lack. Well, omnipotence can't have lack. That's not possible. And so Jesus had to give up some of his omnipotence in order for the incarnation to be possible. And that's a sacrifice. If you're all-powerful, and all of a sudden you're not, we can't even imagine what that would be like. It would be hard. This was the first, Jesus, growing up, was the first time God had ever experienced hunger, or pain, or tiredness, or sorrow, in the same sense that humans do. So he was willing to experience all these things now for us. He gave that up. That was a requirement of the incarnation, was to give up some of that omnipotence. Incredible sacrifice. He gave up uh, some of his omnipresence. Omnipresence. You're present everywhere. Okay, God's everywhere at once, is what that means. And Jesus had to give that up. He had to go from being everywhere at once to being at one exact spot in space-time. Jesus. He was everywhere at once. Now he's right there. And that's it. That's a lot to give up. We, we have a hard time grasping infinity, so it's like, oh, yeah, that's what I suppose that's a But, like, right now, but it's not our fault. Our brains can't handle infinity. That, Jesus, God says that in Job. He's like, I get it. You can't handle this. But it, it's, it's big. Trust me. And so imagine you, you, right now, you can go physically to a lot of different places. You can go anywhere in your house you want. You can go to your neighbor's house. You can come here to church. You can go to the mall. You can go other places. If you wanted to, you could spend money and get on a plane and fly somewhere. You can go anywhere you want, okay? Imagine if tomorrow you were told you have to stay in your room, period. You're stuck in your room for the next 33 years. That'd be a sacrifice, right? To go from being everywhere, anywhere you want to be, to being stuck in your room. That would be a sacrifice. Well, multiply that by infinity. Jesus is literally in every room of every building in every universe that exists all at the same time. And he goes from that to being stuck in one specific room at one time, trapped in space time. And not only that, but to get to the very next room, he has to have somebody carry him because he's a baby. It's nuts to me. I don't get it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so crazy. Um, and that's, just, that's our inability to understand infinity, and it's still crazy. I think when we get to heaven and we see everything that he give, gave up and we understand that, we're just going to fall on our face for like thousands of years probably because it's, it's just, it's so awe-inspiring and so amazing. And it, he's, I mean, we know Jesus from, from John chapter 1, um, created the universe. There's nothing that has been made that was not made by Jesus. He's the great provider, right? He owns everything. And now he's dependent on other people completely. He's dependent now on other people for food, clothes, shelter, safety, all of that. Totally dependent. God has never been dependent on anything, ever. And now he has put himself in a place where he is, literally, life depends on whether or not Mary and Joseph can take care of Him. And in that world, kids died all the time. And so he gave up that power and that glory and that omnipotence. And became a little baby. Um, The humility of this story is incredible to me. And God is showing. He's demonstrating his love through sacrifice. Which is the greatest way you can demonstrate love. And that's what God is doing. Just in order for the incarnation to happen in the first place. He's demonstrating his love through sacrifice. Now again, just, just so that we're all on the same page. Jesus was still fully God. Just because he... Of his own free will, set aside some of those powers for a time. Doesn't mean he was anyway less God. Okay? Those just had to be set aside. He emptied himself of that so that he could fulfill his mission. He could have picked him up any time he wanted to. And the devil says that when he tempts Jesus in the desert in Luke 4. He says, toss yourself off the cliff and then don't die. And show everybody you're God and they'll all worship you. And you can have all the kingdoms of the earth and it'll be great. Jesus could have done that. He doesn't dispute the devil and say you're lying. But he didn't do it. He chose not to do it. Jesus chose to humble himself. Okay, he chose not to reveal himself. He could have jumped off the cross and said, "I'm done. Worship me. I'm God. You guys made a big mistake." You know, but he didn't. He chooses these things. He chose to set everything aside for us. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's important to understand that that Jesus' job was humility. It says he took on the form of a servant. He didn't have the form of a servant before. He had the form of God, right? He needs to be worshipped. And now, he's the one doing the worshipping of God the Father. And that's why you see Jesus, he's always saying, I do only what I see the Father doing. Why? Why can't you do whatever you want? You're, You're the second person of the Trinity. Well, he could have, but he chose not to because his mission was to be humble and to serve and to show us how we're supposed to do it. He lived as a human, to show us how to live as humans. And so the Bible says he did nothing that he didn't see the Father doing. That's what we're supposed to do. Even though he could have done, as God, he had every right to, but he did not. He humbled himself. He only did what he saw the Father doing. And in Luke 4, right after he gets, right after the desert experience, or John 4, 1, it says Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he goes into ministry. Just as we do ministry, full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do ministry because he was God. He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit, just as we do. So Jesus didn't heal people and prophesy and do miracles and cast out demons because he was God. He did it because he was full of the Holy Spirit, a human full of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's hard, I know. This is hard stuff, super hard stuff. Um, But he gave up those powers. Now, could he have healed anybody he wanted to? Of course he could have, but he didn't. He did it, I believe, through the power of the Holy Spirit because it says that multiple times. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he went out. That's how he went out. That's how we're to to go out. That's how we're to do ministry. So anything that Jesus does, we can do because it's the same Holy Spirit that Jesus has. Amen? And that's why he did that. In part, was to show us the way and to show us how he wanted us to do it. So incredible sacrifice just for the birth to be possible. Now let's look at the birth. Everybody knows where that is. Luke 2. Um, Luke chapter 2 now again I don't want to seem like I'm harping on this but sometimes when we know stories so well they can lose its, their meaning a little bit okay? we all know the, the, the birth story so well and so we have to challenge ourselves sometimes to try to read it with fresh eyes maybe read a different translation maybe listen to it instead of read it or something to challenge ourselves to try to look at it from a new perspective so it doesn't just get old because um, Scientists have proven that once you know something really really well the thinking part of your brain shuts off Like when we say the Lord's Prayer The thinking part of our brain is not working. We're reciting. It's a different part of our brain The thinking part of our brain shuts off so we don't think about what we're saying and that can be a problem, right? And so sometimes we know a story so well that we don't really think about it and I want to think about this I'm not going to read it, but we are going to go through it here. So the setting is Israel. Israel was called Palestine by the Romans. It was a Roman occupied place, which is not a good place to be. Um, the Roman Empire was terrible. <laughs> okay? They have 100 different words for killing. There are 100 different Latin words for to kill because they had so many different creative ways of killing. people, And they loved it. Murder was their favorite thing. And they did it really well, better than, the, the, the Roman army was better than any army until Napoleon. And Napoleon was so good because he based his army on the Roman army. That's a lot of time to be the best. Okay, they were incredible at what they did. And they conquered Israel. They took it over, they ruled with an iron fist. Okay, and the people in Rome, which is just a city, it's not even a country, it's just a city. They don't tax their own citizens because they found that if they tax their own people too much, they get ornery, and they're just tougher to deal with, and that's annoying. So they don't tax their own citizens much. They just tax everybody else that they conquer. And so when you're an outlying province like Palestine, Israel, you, you get taxed into poverty, literally. It's nuts. Okay? So this is an oppressive system. They're a lousy government. They're fun to study. I studied them in, in school. I was an ancient studies major. And, and there are things to admire, the like aqueduct, some other things. Um, But they were evil, (laughs) evil, horrible. Um, They had uh, government-sponsored orgies as part of their religion, multiple of them throughout the year. I mean, terrible things. They sacrificed people still. They pretended they didn't, but they did. And and so terrible, terrible stuff. God looks down at that, and he says, what a perfect place to bring my son. That's not how we would think. What would we think? Fire and brimstone, burn them all, right? That's what I would think. Then God thinks, no, this is perfect place for me to bring my son. I hear people talk about America and how lost we are and how terrible things are. And the government is so bad and the church is so lax and, and blah, 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 how terrible it is. And you know, I just can't wait to see God judge us and give us what we deserve. You know, I, I hear people say stuff like this all the time. And I'm like, I agree with most of the first stuff you said about things being bad. But what that means is that God is going to send revival because that's who God is and that's how he works. When things are terrible, we cry out to him and he saves us. That's why he's called the Savior, right? He saves us. And so we may, we may think our government is lousy, but uh, Joseph and Mary, they had it a whole lot worse. And so he has no choice here, no choice but to leave his hometown and go to Nazareth, which was the town of his father's, in order to pay taxes. And so he has to stop working, be out of work for months, in order to have the privilege of going and paying a whole lot of money, probably a year's worth of salary. So he doesn't work for several months in order to give over a year's worth of salary. He was already poor. You can see how this is problematic, right? (laughs) Very problematic. But they don't have a choice. If they don't do it, (laughs) done. Totally done if they don't do it. So they're proceeding to, to Bethlehem. Nazareth is up here. Bethlehem's down here. It's 90 miles. 90 miles of mostly wilderness. Okay, it's not a super fun trip. They're going to Bethlehem, which fulfills Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So they're on their way to Bethlehem. This isn't a great journey, 90 miles, in the best of times. But if you're pregnant, it's really not a fun journey. If you're really pregnant, it is dumb to do this. OK, my wife's an OBGYN. I asked her, would you tell, what would you tell a patient who said, so I know I'm full term, but my husband and I are going to take this 90-mile trek on donkey back in the desert through the wilderness. It'll take about a week. Is that cool? <laughs> Sarah's like, no, <laughs> not cool. Against medical advice, OK? She said she actually might be able to call psych and get the woman locked up to keep her from doing that. Because that is risking your baby's life. And your own. Really, really bad. Why? I I would not allow that to happen to my wife or my soon-to-be baby. You would not either, right? God did. He allowed that to happen. He allowed Jesus to be at risk like that before he was even born. It's just crazy. And it's just thing after thing after thing in this story. So much sacrifice, so much humility. A dangerous, dangerous journey. God showing His love for us through sacrifice. So, did they have a donkey? I I would guess they would, but I don't know. It could be that they couldn't have afforded one. Um, as a as a as a tradesman, he as a tradesman, had he been able to afford a donkey or a mule, he probably would have had one to help bring bricks, lumber, whatever it was that he did. Um, and so, if I had one, I wouldn't leave it back in Nazareth. I would let my wife ride it. So it could have been that she was walking. I don't know that walking would be better, might be worse. Maybe the bouncing might be worse, I don't know. Maybe walking would be better. But walking 90 miles would not be fun either. (laughs) Walking 90 miles would certainly not be fun for a full term teenage girl. So it came time for Mary to deliver. We know this story. There was no room for them in the inn. So they had to go elsewhere. So Jesus' first experience in the world, he's about to be born. He is Emmanuel, come to humans. And humans first say to him, "Uh, no no thanks, not here. Go go over there. Seriously, he's rejected right away. He hasn't even been born yet. And we rejected him. And that would set the stage for most of his life, being rejected. Now, it says, I'm not going to dwell on this, but um, there was no room for him in the inn. The, The word there is guest room. Um, He probably wasn't going to a Super 8 to try to put up Mary. He's probably going to his family. Um, We're talking about Middle East. We're talking about first century Israel. You're going to your relative's house. And all the other people are coming there too because you're going to pay the census. And so Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem have got a full house of people because you have to put up your relatives. That's required, right? And so they're coming in. And um, this is how I picture the story going. They come to Joseph's relative's house. Hey, Uncle Ebenezer, how you doing? I don't know why I picked Ebenezer. It's in a, Christ, it's in a Christmas song, that's why. Um, and they say, oh, Joseph, it's so great to see you. And they kiss and they hug and everything's great. They're like, I didn't even know you were married. I didn't even know you were married and now you're about to have a baby. Oh, this is so wonderful. This is so amazing. Uh, yeah, we're not actually married. yet. What? What are you talking about? You're not married yet. You're about to have a baby. Don't be crazy. Well, uh, it's this thing. We're... we're We're betrothed, but we're not. We're we're not actually married. Oh. Now Israel is a shame-based culture. Japan is similar to that today. And so, when someone in your family does something like that, it brings shame on you, and on the whole family. They grab as much shame as they can, and they take it in. That's just how the culture works. And so, by showing up to the relative's house, they're bringing shame on everybody. OK, I think that no room in the guest house was Joseph's relative saying, We ain't got room for you. You can stay outside in the barn. Or maybe in the entryway to the house, sometimes they'd have the animals sleep in like the first room of the house. And there'd be a manger there. That happens today in Uganda, a lot of places. They'll keep the goats inside during winter or whatever. Um, and so I think that's what was happening. I think this was discrimination based on the fact that they were unwed parents. And what's Joseph supposed to do? Oh, no, no, it's okay. I'm not the father. That doesn't help. <laughs> no, it's God. It's God. This is God's pregnancy. Okay, now you're crazy too. Now you're not even staying in the barn. <laughs> I don't even trust you with the animals. You're down the river. Um, so that, that's what I think is going on here because that's, that's the way it would have worked in the first century. I think Jesus is being rejected by his family. And you know, the, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about this, but he grew up, everybody who knew him knew that Joseph and Mary weren't married. They would have referred to him as a bastard. Everyone would have. And there is a huge pall over, that, over someone and their family in that kind of culture. Huge darkness. Huge shame. And God knew that that wasn't true, but he did nothing to stop it. He allowed that shame to be on that family, and that's, that's, that's interesting to me. Again, sacrifice. Huge sacrifice. Think about Joseph. None of that's his fault. He didn't even say yes to the angel until the dream. I guess you could count that as saying yes after the fact, But... But the sacrifice of Jesus and his family and God the Father bringing this in, into, into being is just incredible. So rejection on rejection. And then she has the child, lays it in a manger, which means Jesus is born where there's other animals happening. Again, who would, who would let their kid be born in a barn? I wouldn't. If my kid, if Johanna is pregnant and is about to have a baby and she calls you on the phone and said, oh, Dad, it's so cute, I'm in this <laughs> animal stall, And there's, like, goats and sheep and stuff here, and it's going to be such a... You would drive as fast as you could down there, put her in a car, and bring her to a better place. Because that is unsanitary. It's unsafe. It's disgusting. There is sheep poop next to God being born. That is wrong to me, right? Wrong! How is this being allowed to happen? It's, It's crazy. It's just crazy. But God lets that happen more than allows it. I think he orchestrated some of this stuff to be the most humble, sacrificial birth imaginable. So again, God demonstrates his love for us through sacrifice. So the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the long-awaited Messiah, has finally come. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Hallelujah. Wonderful stuff, right? Global celebration time. You know, no. So recap real quick. He gave up the beauty and majesty of heaven to become one of us. Gave up his omnipresence, maybe some of his omnipotence, he gave up some of his power, some of his glory, in order for the incarnation to be possible. He ends up stuck in one specific moment in space-time, in Jesus, to become one of us. Um, How is he welcomed after all of that? A risky journey, late in pregnancy, part of an oppressed minority people group in an occupied land, discrimination from having unwed parents among his family, his town, his friends, Total poverty, and this is a no-account family. We didn't even talk about that, but they're nobodies. Absolute nobodies. Okay? Nazareth, no, nothing, nowhere. It's, it's, it's like saying Jesus was from Grantsburg, Wisconsin. It's like, what? <laughs> I don't even know. What? And that, that's, that's what I say every time I read any of this story. What? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And so the creator of the universe laid to rest in an animal stall the whole thing is humiliating to me. When I look at it, it seems humiliating. And I think it is. And it, 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 but, I, but I respond by saying, and that's wrong. It shouldn't have been that way. But God, God looked down at all of that that was happening. and thought it was the most beautiful thing that had ever happened. Why? Why do I think it's incredibly inappropriate and God thinks it's so beautiful? It's because God understands that the greatest form of love is sacrificial love. And that by sacrificing so much to become one of us, by sacrificing so much in the birth itself, God is demonstrating his love for us. The birth of Jesus was the most loving thing that had ever happened in the universe. And it's still number two, in my opinion, right after the cross. Um, To put it in perspective... I think, I think that's what God was saying. I think he was demonstrating his great love, and he's also trying to demonstrate a point. He was making a point to the world because he knew that you know we, we would all be here <laughs> learning about Jesus so far later. Um, he was making a point to the world. Um, I talked about Israel being part of the Roman Empire. So, so here's the Roman Empire. It goes way over this way. They own a lot of stuff. And over here is the Parthian Empire, which used to be Babylonia and, and Persia. It's called the Parthian Empire now. And those empires meet in Israel. Israel is on the e- extreme eastern front of the Roman Empire. And so those s- giant superpowers, the giant global superpowers of the day, they meet right there at Israel. So they're on, they're on the front lines in terms of war, which is constantly happening between Rome and Parthia. Constant war. The, the leaders of these two great nations call themselves the King of Kings. That is how they refer to themselves. The Roman Emperor refers to himself as the King of Kings. The Parthian Emperor refers to himself as the King of Kings. Meanwhile, tiny Israel here in the middle, the real King of Kings is being born. Right? So you see the juxtaposition there. And imagine how the Roman Emperor would be born. Imagine how Rome would treat that. This is the new heir, or the Parthian Emperor. This is the new heir to the throne. The new King of Kings has just been born. They would throw the biggest party ever. You'd have every tr- everyone who's ever seen a trumpet would be out playing a trumpet and there'd be feasting and there'd be mandatory f- celebration and it would be just the craziest thing. Everybody in the empire would know that the new king had been born. Everyone. Everyone in the enemy empire would know that, oh, he's got an heir. There's a new king of kings. Everybody would know. Meanwhile, here's the king of kings, the real king of kings being born, right in the m- literal midst of all of that. And there's nothing. The only people who hear about it are shepherds. Shepherds are nobody. Everyone hates shepherds, by the way. They were like the lowest caste of society other than like maybe lepers. Shepherds weren't allowed to testify in court. Okay? They were ritualistically unclean. They were considered untrustworthy. So the shepherds couldn't say, hey, Jesus is born legally. They weren't even allowed to do that. But God had to show somebody. <laughs> the angels had to tell somebody. They were just, we got to tell somebody. This is too amazing, we can't handle it. And so God's like, okay, you can tell you can tell some shepherds because they can't, they can't shout it from the mountaintops, you know. And so the angels tell them, and so somebody found out, but it was just them. The absolute opposite. No fanfare, no nothing. So the huge discrepancy there between what's happening in the world. And what God is doing in the middle. And so he's showing a, a point. He's trying to make a point to the world that true power is expressed through humility, not through violence. That s- real strength is humility, and real love is sacrifice. And he's demonstrating that, I think, in a very powerful way. And this is the God we serve. This is the lengths he's willing to go to for us to be able to join his family. Uh, it's incredible. Um, and, of course, that same humility is echoed at the crucifixion. Right? Jesus allows himself to be tortured, humiliated, brutally treated, and murdered by his enemies. He allows that to happen. Sacrifice humility. He chooses to allow that to happen to himself. He could have stopped it. Obviously, he could have at any time. Any time he could have jumped off there, instant zap, nailed all the bad guys, you know made himself 2,000 feet tall so that everyone could see him, and then had him all bow down and worship him. He could have done anything he wanted to. He's God. But that's not why he was here. He was not here to be glorified as God. He was here as a servant for us. And so he allowed that to take place, in that extreme humility. And Jesus could have been born the way I think he should have been born, in the greatest palace ever, you know, with like, there, you don't even have to make a feast. Food just grows out of the ground spontaneously everywhere because God was just born, right? And we all all of a sudden love each other and, and, and all the weapons disappear from the world and, like, like, and it's just amazing, magical awesomeness, right? But that's not how he did it. Um, I feel like he should have, but I under, I'm understanding more and more that there's a reason he did it this way. Because he demonstrates his love through sacrifice. It's amazing. So, in conclusion, this Christmas, I want us to think about the links that he was willing to go through to bring us his son, the links Jesus was willing to go through to become one of us it, rejection, oppression, humiliation, true poverty, eventually torture, degradation, gruesome death on a cross. And he did all of that for you and I so that we could join his family forever. I become a part of that. And so this Christmas, when you look at the little baby in the manger, it's okay to have the warm, fuzzy feelings. Those are wonderful. But I would love it if when you see that baby in the manger, you also think about what he had to give up for that to be possible, about the sacrifice and the humility that was taking place at Christmas because that is why Christmas was the most beautiful thing that ever happened. It's not because it's a fun story and there are sheep we get cookies. Those are all great things. But it was because God sacrificed so much out of his love for us. And just so that we could become a part of his family. And if you haven't made room in your own guest room for Jesus yet, I encourage you to do that. Or if you have, but you've since then sort of kept him at a distance said no jesus i got enough you can stay over there think about how much he was willing to go through for you and maybe it's time for you to bow the knee at the manger before Him. let's let's pray Awesome. Cool. Well, we could. We have a couple minutes. If you want to take a couple minutes to discuss, we could discuss for a couple minutes. Let's. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's pray, and then people can discuss if they want. Okay, Father God, I I am in awe of you. <clears throat> I'm in awe of what you gave up. I mean, just, it's just unbelievable to me. Just the, just the, the one thing, just the idea of going from being omnipresent to being stuck in one person, just that, that would be such an unbelievable sacrifice, just that one thing go from having all power to all of a sudden being dependent on other people and feeling pain, having to eat in order to live, and it's just incredible what you gave up. And the, the humble way you chose to be born just, it boggles my mind. It literally just blows me away. I can't even handle it. But I know why you did it. <laughs> and Lord, we want to say thank you. And I pray that you would help us to appreciate it more than we do. I pray that you would help us to appreciate how much you've given up for us. I know as a parent, I can understand the idea of your kids not appreciating how much you've given up for them, how much you've sacrificed, what you've done, how much work it took. And how much more have you given up for us, have you sacrificed for us? And so I pray, Lord, that you could help that hit home this year for us and that we could just be in awe of you, just in awe of the links you were willing to go to for us, just to bring us into your family. And what a worthy sacrifice you were and you made. We thank you for it. Help us to be more thankful this Christmas season. And I pray that we can help to spread that awe to people around us to our friends and family, and that if things get tough or stressful or, or something like that over the next few weeks, that we would remember what you did, what you sacrificed for us, and that we would choose to be more humble in our lives, to reflect that incredible quality of humility that you, that you express as strength. pray that you would bless all of us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.